is very impressive. Gosh, there's even people in the balcony? That's extraordinary. My name is Eric Metaxas. Welcome to Socrates in the City. I am thrilled that so many of you turned up. And uh, by the way, if it's your first time at Socrates in the City, would you raise your hand? Oh my gosh. Now, am, I, am I standing in the right place? This, am I standing in the right place? This is all being filmed. It's making me nervous. That, no, wow, that's, it, that's impressive. So I could tell you anything about Socrates in the city, and what would you, what would you say, right? Uh, gosh. You know, I assume that you wouldn't just come to a situation like this and not know that we single people out to come on the stage and sing and all this, this kind of stuff. You don't ever want to stumble into a play, but I know you're prepared for that. So, uh, so who shall I call up? Let's see. Yes, sir, you. No, I won't do that. I won't do that. This is a very different Socrates uh, in the city. Usually, uh, there's a number of things that make the Socrates different from other Socrates in the cities. Or is it Socrates is in the city? What's the plural of Socrates in the city? I don't know. Um, uh, in any case, we normally do them uh, in these gorgeous uh, private clubs. And we said we really need to, you know, mix it up a little bit and do it in, you know, uh, a former parking garage, something like that. We said, where can we find a place that's just, just ugly enough to, to take the attention, you know, off of, of the room and onto the, to the people who are talking. And so, uh, we were looking for a place like that. We couldn't find it. We found a place a little too ugly, but, you know, the price was right, so we grabbed it. And here we are. Uh, this is, some of you, I'm not sure what they're applauding. Some, some of you know, uh, that this space is uh, typically used by Redeemer Presbyterian Church, right? And uh, that's because a lot of people, you know, they had church experiences growing up, and the church was, they didn't like it, let me, let me put it that way, right? And so they said, let's design a church that doesn't look anything like those other uh, beautiful churches that the, kids, that the kids grew up. Something that just, it'll throw them off. They think they're at a lecture or something. Um, now, by the way, there's a little history to this room. It hasn't been here long, but uh, the saddest words um, that have ever been spoken in this room, and they've been spoken a few times, um, the saddest words ever been spoken are, Tim Keller is not preaching at this service. Um, all right, now tonight you know, it's a strange thing we do, but every five years... We have a Socrates in the City event where rather than I, Eric Metaxas, being the host, uh, I am the guest, right? So tonight I'm going to be the guest, and we needed to find um, a guest host. And I don't know if I should tell you who it is. I don't, I don't think I will. Mm, yeah, okay, I will. It's Dick Cavett. I know that you guys, I know, I know. I want to apologize because Dick, this is his first interview. Uh, he has never uh, interviewed... Hardly anyone before, uh, unless you count, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, Bob Hope, uh, Catherine Hepburn, Jerry Lewis, uh, Pablo Picasso, Groucho Marx, Abba, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, and the list goes on. I cannot believe that we got TV legend uh, Dick have it to stoop to the level of interviewing Eric Metaxas, but that's what you call friendship. He is a friend, and I'm so grateful to him. I'm glad he's not here because he'd be blushing, but I love him to death, and I'm just thrilled 
um, that he's going to be here. Now, most of you don't realize that before Dick had uh, his career, legendary career as a talk show host, he, he did stand-up comedy. And I'm just going to tell you one Dick Cavett joke. I think it's 53 years old. Uh, he said, uh, oh, they opened up a restaurant in my neighborhood recently. It's got uh, Chinese-German cuisine. Yeah, the food is great. The only problem is that after an hour, you're hungry for power. <laughs> I guess I should say December 3rd, we're going to be having an event uh, with, with Dick. He's got a book coming out. I didn't know this. His book launches today, right? So he's kindly interviewing me about my book, but we're going to interview him. I'm going to interview him about his book on December 3rd. Now, I ought to tell you how I met Dick. Uh, I met Dick in 1984 during what I must describe as a period of um, sexual experimentation, I guess you'd, you'd put it. And I, and I had... You know, I always get that wrong. I feel so stupid. That's not true. For some reason, I always, invariably at this point, confuse Dick uh, Cavett with the cast of O Calcutta. And uh, I apologize. I apologize. I don't know how I do that. Um, anyway, uh, before uh, I introduce the host of the evening, Mr. Dick Cavett, there are a few people that I would love to embarrass. Um, we only have time for a few. Let me first of all thank my publisher, Dutton, who paid for a lot of this. And by the way, my brother's just walking in late. Don't look at him. Um, and I also want to thank Walter Kurt for donating the books that many of you got as part of your ticket uh, tonight. Oh, and I'm also supposed to tell you, if you're watching at home, the World Series is on. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? The Giants could get it all tonight. No, if you're watching from home, uh, actually, you can do this here, too. If you're going to tweet, we, we would like to encourage you to tweet, um, but you have to use hashtag true miracles, hashtag true miracles. If you're going to tweet, and we'd love you to tweet about the event, only positive things, if you don't mind. And uh, John, don't be embarrassed. There's a seat right there. Come on, please, come in. And um, you'd never want to come in late to these things if I know you personally, because I'll do that. So if you're going to tweet in True Miracles, uh, hashtag True Miracles, you can tweet questions. We're going to be taking questions at the end of this. And uh, if you have any comments, True Miracles. Okay, now, a few people I'd like to embarrass. Um, now, these people, I want to tell you, some of you have read the book. Uh, some of you, I hope, will read the book. I hope all of you will purchase copies of the book. Um, I don't really care if you read it, but purchase a few copies if you have time. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of fluff, but, you know, i got to put them out once a year. So, um, But there are a few people, I tell miracle stories. The second half of the book is miracle stories, and these are mind-blowing stories, and they're only people that I know. I said i got to put the stories in, miracle stories of people that I know, and a few of those people are in this room. Yeah. You want to meet some freaks? Here we go. All right. Um, is Kimberly here? Where's Kimberly? There she is. Kimberly Thornbury, The Story of the Lost Keys. Kimberly, just, just raise your hand a little bit. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Kimberly Thornbury, um, is April Hernandez in the room? April? I hate you. Uh, is, uh, actually, I want to thank the producer of the evening, my producer, chief of staff, who made all this possible and who is, in fact, featured in the book in a story, is Alyssa Liberis. Where's Alyssa sitting? Someplace. There she is. Okay. She's in the book. Um, 
Now, my goodness, Dick Cavett, who's going to be out here in a minute, he's mentioned in the book, but not by name. I wonder if he spotted himself. Yeah, there's a character in there in the book, and maybe we'll talk about that. Um, probably one of the freakiest stories in the book is uh, about the healing of my friend Paul Teske. And Paul, are you in the room? You're on here someplace. There he is, Paul and Rivers Teske. Yeah, yeah. Not only is uh, Paul's story featured, but then uh, he got like sort of this crazy healing thing. I don't believe in any of this, by the way. And... Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, well, you'll read the book. You'll understand that that's, things are happening in his life. Amazing. Um, but finally, the person I really want to embarrass the most uh, is uh, is featured in the book. Uh, actually, there are four people here. Ed Tuttle, Donna, Tom Vitus, and Sue. Where are you sitting, kids? There they are. These, these four people. And Ed Tuttle um, is the man to whom I dedicate the book. So he's very embarrassed that I'm pointing him out right there. Look, Ed Tuttle. Yeah, yeah. Incredible, incredible. Well, uh, listen, uh, I was telling you about all the people that Dick Cavett has, has interviewed. And if you go online, I can't think of anybody he hasn't interviewed. Every legend, every interesting actor. Um, so it is a big deal that we would, uh, that we would have him tonight in the, in the role of interviewer. I'm just absolutely thrilled. So he's gonna come out here. He's gonna host the show. I was just, giving you a little Socrates in the City uh, introduction. So as they say on TV, ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cavett. I think he's coming out. Yes. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Please. You think I need that? <laughs> I... That's tremendous. Uh, by the way, they serve great bourbon here. This is absolutely all. Uh, that's uh, orange juice for those who worry about my health and personal hygiene and practices. Oh, wait. Eric pointed out I used to do stand-up. Why don't I stand up? I feel silly sitting. There aren't any sit-down comedians. Uh, I, I don't know really how this will go tonight. I just know that Eric is a great friend, and we have a good time together. And perhaps some of it will make it over the uh, lack of footlights there. Uh, and I think you'll like it. I, I'm going to hurry through a story, because reading this book about miracles, I was envious and jealous. And then I remembered that I have one in my life. Does anyone want to hear it, hands? <laughs> I was... Okay, I'm sitting with Barbara Streisand in a, the Kennedy Center in Washington, and there's a TV... Uh, Streisand isn't important to the story, but it's, it's fun to say I was sitting with Barbara Streisand. And, uh, and everybody had left for a lunch break, big TV special, and we're still sitting there. An overhead shot would have shown two people and all the empty seats the Kennedy Center. And then what we call in the business a gopher came over, not a rodent or animal. Uh, you know, a kid who gets coffee and that kind of thing. It's called a gopher. And this kid came over, and he was about 17, I'd say, in jeans and usual gopher costume. He said, do you like coffee, Miss Dreisand? Would you like? And she said, yes, uh, sugar and cream. And then he phrased it, do you like coffee, Mr. Cavett? And I said, ooh, do I? <laughs> 
Now, some of you are old enough to remember that voice from the Jack Benny show. Uh, oh, good. And uh, I said to the kid, I'm sorry, there's no way you could know that. That's an actor from an old radio program called the Jack Benny show. And uh, he said, I know he's my father. We will ask Eric if that's a miracle or not. <laughs> if there's a mathematician here, what are the odds? I don't ever do Frank Nelson's voice elsewhere. And I, a friend who does the math said, if you did it every day, ten times a day for 400 years, the odds against doing it for his son, whom you don't know, would be tremendous. So to me, that's, that's a miracle. Oh, by the way, skeptics have said, well... You know, how do you know it was his dad? Well, he talked about him. He said that his father hated being mistaken for Gail Gordon. Remember that little... They both had wavy hair on the old... Gail Gordon on the Lucy show, anyway. But that's, that's my miracle. Uh, I, uh, I, hope, I hope you will not claim it as your own at a cocktail party. Or anyway, um, where's Eric? Oh, he went home. They told him not to. Let's have a great big hand for the star of our show, Bob Hope. Or Eric, uh, help me, Metaxas. <laughs> that's almost it. You're the that's star of the show. Good. Oh, it's that's your right. show, pal. That's right, I forgot. Um, have a seat, my friend. Would I? By the way, I, I'm uh, so happy to. This hear you refer to Frank. You, you know who Frank Nelson yes. was all these years, yeah. Um, this is a hell of a good book, I must say. Uh, you're talking about uh, this book by Mr. Oh. Dick Cavett. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yours isn't bad either. Um, but I did a bad thing to it. Uh, look, I made notes and everything. Wow. Um, I cannot start a book at my age anymore that has more than 80 pages. Uh, it feels like starting up Mount Everest, so I have to open it somewhere. And if I like that, I read some more, and then I try to go back. So there may be some parts I missed. But the, the ones I got... Isn't that clever? Mort Saul on the subject of Larry King. I read portions of your book all the way through. Good. That's good. And, uh, let's see. I don't think... I made notes, but I, I have a feeling, knowing you and me and you and me together, that we will have very little use for them. But I wonder how I thought we would start out. Uh, you, did you hear my miracle? How can we get this terrific product? That's your first question, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. You peaked. Yeah. Oh, anywhere. You know, where um, books are sold. Yeah. Well, uh, I, 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 I think that it would probably be good quite soon to get to what we mean by a, a miracle. Right. But let me throw you, let me throw you. Um, <laughs> surely, as a book tourist, plugging your book, we all know what, how much fun a book tour can be, um, you almost once a day get the stupid question, why did you write this book? Go I'm ahead. so glad you wouldn't stoop to that. Um, <laughs> You, you can reject that and completely. That's just, no, it, it's not a stupid question. It's a great question because it, it opens everything up. Yeah. Uh, and um, nonetheless, you somehow made it sound stupid just now. <laughs> I feel 
Okay. Let's, let's no, that's the question. Uh, why did I write this book? I, I, my, my editor is here. I didn't want to write the book. Not only didn't, it wasn't my idea, but yeah. when it was pre- presented to me as an idea, I said, I don't, I don't really particularly want to write the book. It's a nice idea. But I was having lunch uh, with Brian Tart. He's here someplace, Mr. Dutton, Penguin Dutton. And I uh, told him one of the miracle stories for my life. I've got, you know, uh, about 10 of them that are just crazy stories. And I included some in the book. And I told him one. And he said, oh, you've got to write a book on miracles. And he was very forceful about it. And he kept asking me over the course of a, a year or so. Yeah. And I, he finally persuaded me that the subject was, um, I guess, a bigger subject than I thought. Because miracles, when you're talking about miracles, mm. you're really talking about everything. You're talking about the existence of God. You're talking about the nature of reality. You're, you're talking about all of those things, ultimately. And... I thought, I, I, I know I've seen a few books on miracles that were rather poorly done. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read that hack, C.S. Lewis, but his book is just, <laughs> it's just trash. He just wrote it to make money. Wait a minute. And, uh, yes. You're talking about Louis C.K.? Yes. No. Oh. I, I got, but, um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, I, I guess there's some more contemporary books. Obviously, nobody could outdo Lewis, although... In a way, his book is so philosophical that it can be off-putting if that's not what you're interested in. I said, I want to write something mm-hmm. on the subject that is simultaneously somewhat uh, critical and in-depth of the subject, but that's also readable to someone who doesn't know where he stands. A book that's simultaneously uh, critical and somewhat skeptical, but not... Uh, closed to the idea, and so I thought I can't think of a book like that, and that is a is a book worth writing. So that's what persuaded me to write the book. That it's just it opens up to everything else. Well, it's one of the best things about it is the fact that you deal with the questions that skeptics have in the book rather than brush them aside as some of the dreary books would. Well, C.S. Lewis and I have something in common, but perhaps you'll remind me later to tell you. Uh, we had two legs, two arms. Right. <laughs> I knew it was something like that. To compare myself yeah. to or with him is, is almost ludicrous. But I love his book, um, A Faith Observed. You ever read that one? A grief Observed. A, a Grief Observed, I mean, yeah. He I first wrote it under a pseudonym, actually. He didn't want people to know. Oh, is that so? I didn't yeah. know that. Mm-hmm. When his wife died, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. Why did he pseudonymously write it? I, I don't know. And then, yeah. and this is a true story, uh, Someone who knew he'd lost his wife gave him a copy of the book. <laughs> That's true. That's really a remarkable, yeah. probably unparalleled uh, literary fact. Uh, have I ever told you my uh, fa- fairly colorless religious history at all? Um, Not really, no. Yeah, when we were swimming or anything? This is a mixed monologue. audience, Mr. Cabot. <laughs> well, I don't mean literally, sweetie. Uh, you, you had a grandfather who was a traveling evangelist or something like that. Grandpa Richard R. Richards, not a made-up name, um, was a... What's the R for? Richard. <laughs> You'd think we rehearse this stuff. We don't. Uh, I, I was told that it was, and he was from Wales, where you have a lot of Evan Evanses and you know, double-name people. 
He was a Hellfire Baptist preacher, evangelist to South Dakota, and brought, gave me the greatest pair of Sioux Indian beaded moccasins any Indian friend has ever seen. One said, these belong to a very great warrior. Um, I liked him. The only theology we ever discussed was sitting on the back porch, and I said, Grandpa, how far is heaven? And he said, farther than we can see, Dickie. And I thought of that for a long time. He, he looked like a more masculine Richard Burton. And very That's almost orange. frightening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I knew you'd like that. But he, he was tremendous. Uh, well, one day we were walking down a side street in Grand Island, and a drunk comes out of a bar and says, Hey, Reverend! There was a terrific thunderstorm. I forgot to tell it. And he said, hey, Reverend, the old boy's really raising hell up there, isn't he? <laughs> and R.R. Richards said, that's nothing compared to what he'll do to you when he gets you up there. <laughs> and I was forced to go to church through junior high and high school. It bored me to idiocy. And uh, all I could do was sit there and replay show of shows, which had played the night before in my head with Sid Caesar. And my parents finally relented, putting me through the dreary sermons. Is if I were okay? your parent, you'd still be in that church. <clears throat> I can't let kids tell you what to do, Dick. You've got to take a firm hand. Uh... <laughs> you, know, you know, sometimes he's funny. <laughs> so there we are. Uh, you've written two books, in point of fact, as some British interviewer will say to you, uh, because the first half is about many, many things. I learned a lot of stuff from the book. Wow. I mean, That's the best compliment factual I Factual knowledge get. sounds kind of boring, but I was not up on a lot of the stories, Lazarus and some of the mm. stories that one had. Yeah, you know, he dies him. eventually. He what? He dies eventually. No. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, uh, <laughs> no. it's disappointing. It's disappointing. <laughs> Why'd you have to break my I'm heart? sorry, I'm sorry. You've got to deal with the facts. You've got to deal yeah. with the facts. Yeah. In fact, um, strike me if I'm wrong. You could almost have called that section on Lazarus God showing off. Do you know what I mean? Well, no, I, yeah. Actually, um, I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but I remember the gist of it is that, well, I mean, it ties into the idea, my idea of why miracles. And I, I hadn't known this going into it. I had to think about it. And I thought, it seems to me that the point of miracles is for God to get our attention to say something. It's not, it's not just random. In other words, if something happens that, I mean, I would say that you know, anything in the natural world could be described as a miracle. There are many, there are many wonderful things that are miraculous, but there, a real miracle, to get technical about it, really, or at least as I was defining them, is... is is when there's a point to it. So, so clearly Jesus could have healed Lazarus so that Lazarus didn't die, but he didn't do that. There, for some reason, uh, at least partially mysterious, he lets him die. He waited a few days. And then he waits past the three days, which mm-hmm. there was this Jewish idea that the, the, the soul hovers um, around the body for three days. Of course, science now tells us that it's actually five days, but um, but he's, he's yeah. Uh, 
But in all seriousness, it's just so strange that he he lets it go that long. And it does seem clear that the point was to make a point, to show people the unthinkable, that he could do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you believe the story, uh, which I do. And, and I think that that's, that's something I hadn't thought very much about, that miracles are God trying to communicate uh, mm-hmm. to the people experiencing the miracles. You know, I didn't ask you what you see as my role here tonight. Um, yes, well, that's why I'm so glad this is uh, the dress rehearsal, because uh, <laughs> we're going to work out the kinks here uh, in New Haven, as it were, and then when yes, we take it to New York, you know, we'll be yeah. ready to go. Um, it's nice to know you're, nobody's you're, out there watching or we'd be in big trouble. And, and, and it, it really is your show, right? You're interviewing yeah. me, uh, I guess, on this book around the subject but, of miracles, uh, so your, your role is to do anything you like. Well, your theatrical instinct was wonderful of turning away half the audience by reminding them of the World Series uh, being on. And, um, I know we yeah. lost about 40 people in the back there. There was a standing room only. But, the yeah. only people watching us are some burly women with husbands who are too sissy to like baseball. Yes. Well, listen, God has called me to those people. That's my... Uh, That's your crowd. Those are my peeps. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, can I, it's all right to applaud. We don't hate it. Uh, can I play the role of the skeptic, if not the devil's advocate, if not the devil occasionally, to say, for example, why would God need to feel the need to remind someone, as with the thing we just were talking about, uh, of his presence and interest in their life? Um, it, it almost ties in with when a TV host says, our hearts go out to so-and-so on our staff who had this tragedy, and we hope you will all pray. And to a skeptic, that always raises to me the question, does he have a minimum number of prayers he had to, has to get? Before well, you know? see, but that's not... Skeptics don't ask that question. Any thinking person asks that question. I mean, I'm not a skeptic as you are, and I ask that question all the time. You kind of I'm think... I'm playing the role of how a many, Yes, right. Exactly, that's what I meant. And um, but but the point is that I mean I, here's the thing I think to some extent even the term skeptic is confusing because everyone should be skeptical to to the to the point that they they really want to know what things mean just to accept things like every, you know in and I find you know in in the Christian world in which I travel there are some people who are tremendously thoughtful and then there there are people that that aren't they don't think about this kind of thing. And they tend to yeah. lean on cliches and truisms, and and you realize that at, at some point there are no answers to this. Who who knows? These are mysteries. I mean, okay. when I pray, I don't know, um, you know, whether if I pray five minutes longer, it will it will have an effect. And I, but I do think that the the mind wants to ask those questions, but in in a way, when we ask those questions, we're we're hunting in the wrong field. So to speak, that that got, there's no trick, right? In other words, I, I I define dead religion versus true faith. Dead religion would be like, well, you say five Hail Marys, or you do this, or you do this, and then there's magic's going to happen. And you think, wait a minute, mm-hmm. that's that can't be right. That that's if if that's who God is, that I've got to jump through these hoops. God looks on the heart, so there's something else going on, and it's more difficult to uh, explain. In fact, maybe it's ultimately inexplicable, but the, the idea that 
it's if we can just get three more people or four, you know, the, the, it's almost like there's yeah. a principle, but if you push it too far, it breaks. If you could get one answer that you don't have yet, oh, I hate this kind of question, what would it be? One question that I don't have yet? What's yeah, what, the capital yeah, yeah, of North Dakota? <laughs> Didn't you know I was going to say that? Let's not go down that path. Do we need to tell Let's them start it over again. From? Cut, and we'll take it from the top. Um, <laughs> Later, perhaps. If there's one yes. answer, one question. You know, it's funny because the, the answer really is no. There are so many, and so it, it's just... But this is the thing. What I try to do in, in the book is help people think about these things without feeling the need to get solid answers. In other words, I think the very idea, I mean, for example, when these, the old biddies, uh, you know, tell you, you've, now you've got to pray and these things, that stuff is just so tremendously harmful, not just because of the effect that it had on you or that kind of thing, but it, it, it leads people along false paths. I mean, the very idea that, uh, you know, if you pray harder, then this will happen. So suddenly it puts the whole thing on you. Mm-hmm. And there is, a, there is a mystery, as I say, that to some extent that's true because God calls us to, to pray. But once you buy into the idea that, that it's, it's up to me, this is not something God is doing, it's up to me. So therefore, I've got to pray harder or this thing won't happen or I've got to get more people to pray or this thing won't happen. It already takes on a flavor that's false. Even though the idea of praying is is a good idea, it takes on this anxious, you know, in the Christian world it's called works righteousness. This idea that I'm going to do these things and I'm going to Mm -hmm. earn my way to heaven when the Bible is pretty clear that you cannot earn your way to heaven. It's like swimming to Hawaii. You might make it 10 yards, you might make it 20 miles, but everybody drowns. You cannot get there. And so yeah. the, you have to, but, but there are people who put this on themselves, that, that they, they, they act like I'm going to do it. And that's why I use the example of Lazarus in the book. And I say, how much faith did Lazarus have? He was a rotting corpse. He did not have any faith. You know, it was utterly God acting upon him. And I think that that's a valuable way to see it. Yeah. Well, that sort of thing is sort of insulting to God isn't it? in the sense that, uh, He's like an auctioneer up there saying, I haven't got enough yet. Come on, come on, right. give me some more, give me some more. Uh, and yet many people seem to see it that yeah. way. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I'm always bothered by something that comes up in the book. The athlete who drops to his knees and thanks God for making the Knicks win that night. Now, I want to say, of all the egotism. Uh, <laughs> I think I deal with that. Oh, in not here your place. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no I think there. I'm going to find one of the parts you didn't read. Uh, <laughs> oh, just open it anyway. Because, because. <laughs> you know, right. and I'm joking. In the, in the, in the um, yes, we do. In, in the, uh, in the paperback pre-pub version, which I dumped on you before we had hardcovers, um, on page 81, the title of the chapter is, If We Thank God for the Good Things, Why Not Blame Him for the Bad? Right. And here, I refer to a certain good friend has often remarked that athletes publicly thanking God annoys him, because it follows logically that if they thank God for their successes, they should also blame him for their failures, and why don't they? This is a very good question. 
uh, and I go on. You know, to, I want a tremendous I, effect. By I the way, wondered I wondered if that. <laughs> I wondered if that was I. Yes, and, and it then, was I. Yeah. I wrote the whole book. He just made that uh, up. It's not in there. No, no, it is. It's page <laughs> yeah, 81. Yeah. No, it's de- I was definitely thinking of you when I wrote that. You're not the Gosh. only person that has ever said that, but you've said it a couple of times yeah, over you could the have course put my of our name friendship. <laughs> and I didn't want to I didn't want to embarrass you. I wanted to save that for tonight. So, um, <laughs> that's so good of you. But um, I, uh, let's see. Yeah. But th- that sort of thing, you know. And and then I know this is the stuff that gets debated at college yeah. and uh, late nights with beer and uh, you know, if uh, the woman uh, who, who says God certainly had our little Sally in his hand when all the other little girls were incinerated on the school bus. Right, right. And I would say, you think he right. decided, right. ruling out all those other hateful people and their children, yeah. that he picked you, right. Mrs. What is it again? Right. Well, that's, what, I mean, that's, that there's so many versions of that. It's yeah. like where somebody says... Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, my teacher had a heart attack, so I didn't have to take the quiz. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and, right. yeah, that's, uh, that's real nice. Right. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard a comic on television panel mention someone who's died without saying, may rest in peace, so quickly that for years I didn't know what he was saying, may rest in peace. I thought he was saying something... Well, that's, I mean, this is why I think that, again, there's, there's real faith in the real God, and then there's superstition, which, you know, a lot of religion is really superstition, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing, where people say, we'd be better say the better they may rest in peace. It's no different than saying knock on wood or whatever. It's yeah. this fear-based stuff that says that I better do this because God's looking for an opportunity to whack me if I do the wrong thing or if mm-hmm. I don't say this or if I don't do that. And, you know, I would simply say those people are totally missing the point. Yeah. But there, there are many people, they think of themselves as and, uh, people of faith who buy into a lot of that stuff. And see God as making a list and checking it twice. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. You could have used that in the next edition. You know, I might. Uh, <laughs> now, how were you in the college at, at Yale? Does you mind if I mention that it's Yale? Um, the great Jonathan Winters told me once, said, you know, my dad went to Yale, and I was always made to feel funny around all his Yale friends. But he said, I got even once. One of them said, in the years when I was in New Haven, and Jonathan would say, was that New Haven Polytechnic? Or, <laughs> <laughs> but um, in those bull sessions, let's say it gets to the inevitable point where somebody says... If God was powerful enough, why didn't he save my sister from being drowned? And if he isn't powerful enough, then he isn't God. Or if he is powerful enough and didn't, then he doesn't give a damn. And then what did you say at that point? Or were you one of those speakers then? Um, I did not really have faith then the way I do now. I think, I mean, my, my faith experience growing up was kind of typical church. A lot of people go to church and it's this nice thing, but... You don't really learn anything. And mm-hmm. by the time I went to Yale, of course, Yale, at least in the 80s, was extremely secular. No, nobody seemed to take uh, seriously even the idea that, you know, biblical faith would make sense or anything like that. And so I fell into that world, and wh- whatever faith I had either evaporated or was challenged enough that I just didn't, I just didn't think about it um, and actually, I do fault Yale for that. I think a lot of the academic institutions, the best ones, best, 
uh, do take a secular point of view, which is intellectually very sloppy. It's at least sloppy um, mm-hmm. because they're not they're not really dealing with things. They kind of buy into a worldview. It's basically a secular humanist worldview without saying that they do. They just sort of assume it, and I would say push away a lot of the bigger questions like what's the meaning of life, why are we here, mm-hmm. and I would say that a real education would, would have you at least grappling with those ideas. It doesn't mean you have to hand out uh, answers, but, um, but my experience was like that, and so I don't know. I had all kinds of questions when I was there. I don't think I would have put... I think I was around people who were aggressively uh, skeptical, yeah. who probably would have challenged me on whatever foundering faith I had at the time. My... F- of three of my three favorite teachers, one of them was uh, the great Sterling professor of philosophy, Paul Weiss, who looked like a Brooklyn cab driver and sounded like one and could think down eight men at once. <laughs> and uh, once said to a student who said, you know, Mr. Weiss, God speaks to me. And Weiss said, well, he doesn't speak to me, and I want to know why he's prejudiced and what he has against me. God may speak to you, but he never speaks to me. Mm. And I remember that moment, what, but what I don't remember say? what followed it. I yeah. remember thinking that's a good well, thing. it's it's um, but I mean that is the question, and the thing that I I mean I have to say that I asked a lot of people, friends, if they'd had miracle stories, and a lot of people had none, and some people had some, and there were a few who had a ton, and I thought, that's, wow, how is it that you know that that's where I felt jealous? I yeah. thought, my goodness, that's amazing, and there are two of them. One of them is my friend Eva Meyer. I would never mention her by name, but she's in the book. And she had just this host of amazing experiences. And I think that, again, when it comes to faith questions, we at least have to be honest. It's no different than science. I mean, if you've got strange evidence for this and this and this, just because you can't make sense of it doesn't mean you don't have the evidence, right? And In other words, if you can't put it together, well, then you can't put it together. And so the best thing you can do is say, I don't know. And I think that when it comes to that kind of stuff, you have to say, I don't know. I can talk about it. I can talk. In other words, I do think that if someone were to ask God to reveal himself, uh, mm-hmm. my friend Ed Tuttle, who I would never point out publicly either again, but I remember Ed saying that, why don't you pray that God would uh, reveal himself to you? Yeah. Because Ed could tell that I was, you know, fumfering around for answers and... Uh, I remember thinking, well, wait a minute, if God doesn't exist, how am I going to pray to him to ask him to reveal himself to me, right? <laughs> but I think that in our hearts, we, especially if you're in pain, you're willing to do the stupid thing and say, I don't know if you're there, but if you're there, re- reveal yourself to me. And I would say that most people who pray that prayer, I would say, I'll go out on a limb and say, I think God would reveal himself in different ways ways to most people who earnestly ask that. I would, I would say that. But it's never the way we think it should be or the way we want it to be. And I prayed that prayer, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And then six months later, something happened. Now why? I don't know why. But who has answers yeah. for any of those? Well, there are instances in the book where people ask to, be, to hear from God, and they do or they don't. Um, and it raises the old question, how does he choose whom he's going to answer? Why can't he just say, mais voici, here am I? I don't know. We can well, ask we him. came for answers. We can ask him. I think, <laughs> I think actually, one of the things that I think is that when you talk to people who have had 
examples of God speaking into their lives. One thing that is typically produced by that is some kind of faith that that could happen to me. In other words, I think if you're around people uh, for whom this never happens, you think that this just doesn't happen and you don't you don't bother with it. But there's something about talking to people and hearing these stories that it's almost like it opens that world up a little bit. And I, I say in the book that you know two of my greatest heroes in the faith, William Wilberforce and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they never write about any experiences like this. And I think of them as two of the greatest yeah. Christians who ever lived in the history of the world, but mm-hmm. they didn't experience this. So, yeah, this is... Uh, there's just a lot of mystery, but I think again you can talk about it, and I think it's worth uh, it's worth telling it's worth telling these stories because it encourages people to think about it and to know that it's it's possible. But you know, if it doesn't happen to you, I, I do say this in the book that if your goal is results, God can't there, there, God can't work with that because on some level you're making results your God ultimately, and if you're praying to the God of results. He doesn't exist. So there's a strange uh, uh, way that that goes, that you're, you're sort of... It's, I, I, I compare it to a parent, right? In other words, if you say to your parent, please give me this. Now, if the parent loves you, the parent wants to do good and, and to bless you and to, and to do things, but oftentimes our parents say no. If you know that the parent really loves you and is really good, that no is not as hard because you say, well, there's something going on. There's a reason they're saying no. They're saying no for a good reason. Um, and I think it's the same with God, that, that if, uh, if you know that God loves you, it changes things. Because if the answer is no, you say, well, it's okay. He's, he's working something else out. He's doing something. I, I, don't, I don't need to know everything. And, you know, if you deny your kid cotton candy uh, every meal, you know, most kids, you know, they want what they want, but... Uh, when they grow up, they say, well, you know, I'm glad that I didn't like it at the time, but there, there was something to that. And again, that's a general principle, but yeah. it's something that um, I cling to along with my guns and Bibles. God. <laughs> Sounds like a title of a musical. <laughs> uh, God is not great is, I think, the accurate title of Chris, yeah. Christopher Hitchens' yeah. book. Yeah. Uh, did you tangle with him once on TV? Or? Uh, we did on CNN. We weren't in yeah. the same room. I don't know where, where he was, but he looked disheveled. I think that was his whole thing. <laughs> I think he woke up disheveled and then uh, would make himself uh, less disheveled yeah. to, to look more intellectual and, and formidable. We're formidable, depending on... Uh, Who's Either speaking. one is good. And I think that, yeah, I was, you know what it was? This is actually a funny thing. I remember uh, Jerry Falwell died, right? And I know that everybody has different opinions of, of Jerry Falwell, but I knew enough about him to know that he wasn't as bad as his detractors made him out to be. You'll have to convince me, but go ahead. Well, we don't have, <laughs> we don't have that much time. But, <laughs> but the, the point, here's the point, really, is right. that uh, Christopher Hitchens went on TV like about 80 seconds after the death was announced and said the most vicious, nasty things. And I, I thought, you know what? That's just wrong. Give us because a few. Be- <laughs> well, I mean... 
he, he said some really nasty things. But it was so nasty and so disrespectful, I thought, look, the guy just died. And, you know, you can't uh, – and, and it, it, it really did offend me because I thought it's just disrespectful. There are plenty of people out there who don't share that view. Can you just give them, you know, yeah, five yeah. hours or something like that? And I thought I'd like to go on TV – uh, and, and, and say something about this because it's just nobody seems to be answering him and it seems wrong. That's and of course, you. but I didn't yeah. have anybody, you know, any, any producers who were going to call me up. And then four or five days later, a producer contacted me and said, would you like to go on TV to comment about this? Now, I'm not saying that's a miracle, but it was very strange. Mm-hmm. And when they say, would you like to comment about this? I said, would I? <laughs> and it turned out, it turned out, the producer turned out to be the son of Nelson. Yeah. yeah, Frank Nelson. It's unbelievable. It ha- this stuff happens. It happens. No, but the, the point is that, I, so I, I said, that's crazy. And I went on TV and I, I got to, to, to talk w- with, with him about it. And I think it's a funny thing because p- people have said that my book, because it's got the yellow cover, looks like God is not great. And I never even thought of that. It sort of does. But in, on some level, it's meant to be, I hope, a civil answer to folks like uh, Hitchens and Sam Harris and Dawkins, because I think that, you know, we need to have a civil conversation about this. But I, I say that because I think Hitchens could be so nasty. It was a kind of an unshirted nastiness that I, I think it's uncalled for. I think it's great TV, it's fun, it's entertaining, but mm. it doesn't do the subject uh, justice. And when I had this little, whatever, 11 minute debate with him on TV, I you know, I just know that he he's super brilliant, so I wasn't there to match wits with him. I was just there to kind of represent yeah. a point of view and to try to do it civilly and lovingly because I just thought I don't want to stoop to the, the level of, you know, sometimes but, debating these things is itself not worth doing. That was good of you. I, I envy that side of you. I don't think I have any of it. Um, <laughs> I certainly could not go on and defend nasty things. I mean, attack nasty things said about... Oh, I, I wasn't defending just, just Falwell so name, much as saying uh, it was unseemly yeah. of him to, to do that. It was just wrong, you know. Right. I was tempted to say, you know, in America, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. But I resisted. I don't think I'd do it for Dick Cheney. <laughs> Dick Cheney? Is he still kicking? Come on, really? I'm afraid. Wow. Yeah. Now that Arsenio He's and Jimmy more blood Chase on have his passed hand. on. There's a man with more blood on his hands than... Uh, I know you mean that in a good way. I know you mean that in a good way. Oh, I only... Now, he's not not a person of of faith that I know of, but I think that we're not going to talk about Dick Cheney too much more because he's not the kind of person that really I write about in the book, and I know you want to ask me about things in the book. Right. Right? No, I know it. Look, look. Let's see. Pick a page and tell it if you're ready. Oh, can I talk about the moon? Yes. When I say there's factual stuff in the book, it sounds kind of dreary. But the fact is I learned so damn much about the weight of the the moon, why things have to be. One million things have to have happened the way they did for the solar system and and the Yes, but but here's what I love. People always posit this false uh, problem between faith and science. And I think, look, first of all, that's nonsense. Anyone who says that doesn't really understand what science is and certainly doesn't understand what, what faith is. And then not only is there not this big problem between faith and science, but mm-hmm. science, to some large extent, 
can lead you to faith, or it can certainly lead you in that direction. And the story of the moon and all this stuff, I, I guess the, the main thing, I talk about the so-called fine-tuned universe. Right. This is what scientists are saying. This is not theologians and pastors. This is scientists mm-hmm. talk about mm. how, I mean, there, there are two issues. First, there's one chapter I have on the life on Earth and how difficult it is to create a planet where life could exist. Now, I think because we're here breathing, we kind of think, well, what's the big deal? You know, yeah. since I've been born, it's been pretty, pretty easy to breathe and stuff. And, you know, I, I have never been tempted to, uh, to go to another planet. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's just a, something we take for granted. And who wouldn't take it for granted? But then you start looking at it and you go, this is freaky. This is really, really freaky that there's life on Earth. And it, it's not, you know, it's not like there's plenty of other planets where this, this can happen. And the more science we know, this is what I love, the more science we know, the more impossible it is to believe that any planet in the vast universe should be able to support life. I mean, that's, that's a freaky thing. And I didn't really know that until I did the research for I the didn't book. either. I didn't know how many things had to fall into place. Now, so the Big Bang Theory is what to go with, right? So well, I would say so. There's, there's some people who don't subscribe to that. By the way, today... In the Amazon comment section, there were three uh, there were three reviews of my book, and one referred to the Big Band theory. Oh yeah, and uh, like Stan Kenton and yes, uh, yes, yeah, right. I love him. That's right. That's right. Uh, oh, most people don't Lord. know that Tommy Dorsey dabbled in astrophysics. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. But anyway. But the big, yeah, no, the big, the big Bang Theory. In fact, actually, getting back to this idea of the fine-tuned universe, it was Fred Hoyle, who I guess he was doing a BBC interview in 1953, who uh, coined the term Big Bang. He just kind of, you know, came up with the idea of this Big Bang, and that's where yeah. we get the term. But Fred Hoyle was an atheist who was freaked out by this fine-tuning, and he said that. As far as he was concerned, the universe looked like what he put a, he, he described it as a put-up job. It couldn't just have happened. Now, this is somebody yeah. who would know. You know, the rest of us, I think we have to take it on faith, so to speak. Right. But it's just an extraordinary thing that you have physicists saying that this couldn't have just happened. It doesn't make sense. But if they're so uncomfortable with the idea of a creator God... They, they try to concoct ways out of it, right? And, and the mm. one, the most ridiculous one, maybe the only one but that, that you really hear over and over these days is the multi-universe theory, the multiverse theory that, oh, well, of yeah. course, there's an infinity of universes out there. We can't see them. We have no evidence, but they've got to be there, right? And wrong. And, um, <laughs> and surely one of them must have everything perfectly fine-tuned, and we just happen to be in that one right now. Isn't that great? That's and wonderful. That gets, that gets you out of it, you know. But I thought that's so yeah. crazy. But yes, I think that that to me is extraordinary. That scientists are saying that it's kind of spooky. It's kind of yeah. challenging my lack of faith. In fact, I want to mention the moon. I didn't know this, and this is nuts. You know, we all have heard of the moon. Anybody unfamiliar with the moon? <laughs> the moon Someone from New Jersey hasn't heard of it. The, the, the uh, Put your shoes you know, on and get the hell out of here. A lot of <laughs> Jackie Leonard. Oh, I was Eric, hoping you were going to bring up Jackie Leonard, especially Eric, when you start you... talking about Cheney. 
Jackie Leonard. Okay, so can I talk about the moon, the moon, the moon? The moon, but I didn't know this. And I find it funny because we're talking about the moon. We're not talking about Neptune or something. It's the moon. Like, we all know about the moon, right? But if you say to somebody, hey, how did the moon form? Most people, myself included, would say, "Eh, I don't know. Like, we don't really know or we have some idea that it congealed from, you know, something. We don't know. Well, as happens, right, scientists know more and more and more. So when I was in grade school, uh, they weren't so sure. But now they seem to have settled on a theory. And this is the theory. And this is insane, except scientists are saying that this happened. Um, A giant turtle. You know, I take that back. That's the Inuit version. I take it back. I'm sorry. 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 It could, that could have happened. Who are we to say? Uh, the, they say that this is what happened. The Earth was created. Okay, the Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago. 4.5 billion years ago, the Earth was formed, right? You know, becomes yeah. something. But it wasn't as big as the Earth is now. Uh, it was maybe two-thirds of the size. So let's call it the Earth is sitting there 4.5 billion years ago. A quarter of a billion years later, an object collides with the Earth. Now, you have to think about this. If you know anything about space, you know that planets and stars are so far apart from each other that galaxies can literally pass through each other with with almost no collisions. That's how far apart Planets. Okay, so you get that picture, and then you, you realize that, okay, 4.5 billion years ago, the Earth is, is floating around out there, and a body about the size of Mars begins a journey from the infinite depths of outer space, and that journey goes on hundreds of millions of years until it collides absolutely perfectly with the Earth. Now, it's, it's something uh, like, a, like a billion times more difficult to imagine than if, that if we stood on the opposite side of the Grand Canyon, fired guns, and then the bullets went bink and dropped into the canyon mm-hmm. just perfectly. That's what scientists say happened. And when that happened, the proto-Earth, the, the uh, early Earth, uh, had an atmosphere 40 times thicker than it is now. So Victor. trying to breathe, breathe, it would be like breathing sand. Uh, I don't know if you ever tried that. I don't recommend it. And when that collision happened, it was such a perfect collision that that thick atmosphere was blasted into outer space. So we have one-fortieth of the atmosphere, the very atmosphere that we're breathing as we sit here. And it, it made life on Earth possible. It made it possible for sunlight to touch the surface of the Earth. And that's how the moon formed. And I read that and I thought, you're telling me that this just happened and that we wouldn't be here if that hadn't happened exactly perfectly? I am convinced, logically, it takes far more faith to believe that that just happened randomly and here we are than it does to say God created the universe and put us here. I actually actually think logically it doesn't mean you can prove anything, but the facts seem to lead me to think that way. If one little thing had been wrong, yeah. but if it had, then would you have to say God can make a mistake? I think by definition, God can't make a mistake, but... Uh, Gets us back to Dick Cheney. <laughs> wow! Now, there is such a thing as... 
we have this little doctrine called the fall, which kind of screwed things up. Yeah. And um, otherwise, Bush, Bush would be on his fourth term by now, right? <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. But no, but the, the thing is that, 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 but you bring up something important because people say, oh, you know, how, how is it that God created, you know, cancer and daytime TV, right? That was your joke earlier. I think you're talking about that. Something, something and I like think that. the point needs to be made that there is this thing, this doctrine called the fall, meaning that the way things are, they're not supposed to be this way, yeah. that things are broken. Perhaps that sounds like a cop out, but I'm sticking with it. Could he get fed up with us again and drown us all? No. Oh. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen by fire the second time. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. The oh, earth God. is going to melt, oh, and that's never easy. <laughs> yeah, that, that requires orange juice. Yeah. <clears throat> Eric, if the fall had happened, it? there'd be no pulp in there. Think about that. <laughs> that's right. true. Neat point. Yeah. Um, is any of this way relate in any way to the thing you, you were? Oh, we were all stunned with the first time we heard it. If a thousand monkeys were put in a room with typewriters throughout infinity, are we sure they would ever turn out Hamlet? Okay, remember now, that. That right. Actually, that ties into what we're talking about, which is maybe why you brought it up. I think um, <laughs> that's actually uh, erroneous. In other words, that. When people say an infinite amount, I mean it's it's right. kind of like it's 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 exactly like when people say or say throughout eternity, you would say. Yeah, well, that, that, that's that's the thing, and and, yeah. and here's the first thing: scientists say, and I agree that there's no such thing as eternity. We've had 13.8 billion years. That's it, and you got to deal with that math. That's we don't have we don't have an infinity of years now. Until we knew that, that's why until the 20th century, when the Big Bang theory was basically accepted. Yeah. Until that time, you could say, and, and people today still try to say that the universe never began, that it's always existed. If you believe it's always existed, that gives you the opportunity to say anything mm -hmm. can happen. But if you believe that it began 13.8 billion years ago, yeah. you're stuck with the math. I mean, evolution, everything right. you believe in has to have happened on a certain time scale, and there isn't enough time to account for uh, a number of the things that... Have well, happened. And you point out in the book the infinite number of things that happened in the infinitesimal part of a second after the tiny thing became everything. That's what has freaked uh, out the physicists because yeah. they know that's true. I mean, yeah. we, we're taking it on faith. We don't know anything about this. But they, they know that if one of the four fundamental forces had been just ever so slightly different, yeah. not life couldn't exist. The universe wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. And they know that. And they know that those four fundamental forces were set in cement less than a millionth of a second after the Big Bang. That's not a very long. A millionth of a second. <clears throat> not two weeks. No. A millionth of a second. I've had television shows last that long. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> but I, I put it to you that those who say, and God kind of pulled the trigger and the whole thing happened, what was he doing before that? Well, it's funny you should ask because I happen to know, I happen to know, but unfortunately... That's why we have you here. I can't tell you. Uh, yeah, well, actually, it's funny you say it that way because you say before, this is where it gets crazy. God didn't create space. He created space and time. The, the idea, now again, physicists 
can explain this better than I can, but I can at least reiterate what they say. They say that time and space were created in the Big Bang. Wow. Now, if you think yeah. about that, we think of a big space and the Big Bang happens in the middle of it and it fills out the space. Mm-hmm. They, these physicists, say that, no, 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 there was no space. Now, we can't comprehend that, and I don't expect to be able to comprehend it, mm-hmm. but time and space, so, so there was no before before then. It's, I mean, physicists call it a singularity, yeah. and that's a fancy word for we don't know what happened before. Yeah. It's quite singular. It's, yeah, well, yes, oh. it is. Boy. Um, shall we tell one of the miracles in the book? I, I found them fascinating, and um, I feel I could explain a couple of them, of course, in my egotism. But um, there's one that will haunt me because it's like a perfect short story. Could be an O. Henry story. Which or one is it? This one is a, 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 it has the Chinese railway in it, and it yeah. reads like a lovely short story. Thank you. I wrote that. Um, well, it's you funny. claimed it was that lady whose name you mentioned when you could have given her initials. <laughs> you sure? No, you, I, you mentioned a lady in the audience. You uh, don't yes. mention her name in the book, but you... No, no, I don't. Well, honestly, th- th- there are a couple of stories in the book. That's one of them where there's a part of me, and this is why I think I, I'm just being totally honest, right? I think right. that it's not about proving something. You simply want to know what is. And because mm-hmm. if something's not a miracle, I go, fine. I just want to know what, you know. So, but the thing is that it's the people, and this is kind of like it's like in a court of law where you're, you're having to make judgments. It's, it's not like, you know, you've got beakers and Erlenmeyer flasks and, and, and test tubes. This is... These are judgment calls, and some of them are more uh, easy to make than others. That was one that I know, obviously, the guy who told me the story. He's extremely bright. The people he's hanging out with are extremely bright. So they're not likely to be just sort of sloppy and they missed something or they just wanted to believe it or something like that. Well, let's make up a miracle for Eric. Yeah, that's – but, but, I mean, it is Mm. possible. I mean, of all these stories in the book, that's one of maybe two or three that I would say it is possible – uh, that it wasn't a miracle and that it was just a crazy coincidence of not being able to, you know, yeah. that's possible. And I, and I say that just because I think it's true. It's possible. I, mm-hmm. I still think it is a miracle knowing what I know of these folks, but it yeah. doesn't need to be. It's, yeah. I think, you know. Well, perhaps we should pause and define the difference between a great, fabulous coincidence, uh, like, oh, good, and... Um, and a miracle. Well, okay. I, I think the term miracle, I sort of said this earlier, on one level, it's utterly subjective. So there is, to be perfectly clear, no answer to these kinds of questions. In other words, what happened with uh, you bumping into Frank Nelson's son, just as you said, mm-hmm. you know, it's crazy. But I would say if there is a God, and obviously I think there is, that that those kinds of things are, it's not entirely uh, clear what it is. I think it's very possible that God is sometimes trying to get our attention. And it's not the sort of thing one can prove, because it could be a coincidence. But it's sort of, there's, there's circular reasoning here, because I'm saying that if there is a God then everything that happens, he's aware of everything that happens. So it doesn't really prove anything because it's on some level circular reasoning, but I'm being consistent in saying that if there is a God, 
those kinds of things don't just happen. He's aware of everything. And I think, hmm. actually, I've had uh, the story I tell about how I came to write the Bonhoeffer book, This Crazy Dream. I don't know if you oh, read that one. This yes. Crazy Dream, right? Now, to me, I knew when it happened that that was a miracle. I knew it. But at the time, I had no idea about the meaning of the miracle. And that's happened to me a number of times, a number of stories that didn't make it into the book because my vicious editor, Brian Tart, who's in the audience, would not let them be put, oh, what he denied you, you have no idea. Oh, the stories. Brian, I, yeah. I would be hiding my face right now. Maybe but, you should just give his initials. But, uh, <laughs> his initials are Brian Tart. Uh, but I, actually, I've had a number of experiences, a number, where something happens... And it's as if God is saying, now just, just pay attention to this. It's kind of like, just highlight this. We're going to come back to it later. <laughs> That's happened to me four or five times. And the story of the, of the dream is one of them. And I remember when it happened, my aunt, my tanta Eleanor, said, what, is that? what do you think that means? And I remember, and again, this is in the book, I said to her, I don't know what it means. I, I know it's a miracle because it is so outrageous that it's freaking me out. I don't know what it means, mm-hmm. but I suspect that God will reveal it to me in the future. I suspect. I don't know. I've had other experiences like that, rare, but where where I, I still don't know quite what it meant. But that one, I, I felt really clearly the meaning was, was revealed to me l- later on. And I think sometimes that is the case, where we, we don't know when it happens. We know when it happens, something you know, uh, yeah. miraculous happened. But, I mean, when you talk about your story, it's entirely possible that that is a uh, coincidence. But I'll tell you, you know, logic, I think, would push you to think that it doesn't, could it be, it's just too crazy to be a coincidence, as far as I'm concerned. Too improbable to be. Uh, Could we give him a quick idea, tell me if I misrepresent this, but Eric dreamed of seeing a, a photograph of his German relatives, who all preceded him, obviously, and he wished intensely in the dream that he could be in there among them in the photograph. And then what happened? And that, Yeah, and this is the super bare-bones version because there are all these odd yeah. details that make it uh, a little bit more. And, and actually, that's the case with almost all these stories. I thought it's the details that, you know, the, the simple thing is, you know, I prayed and the Red Sea parted, and that's easy. You can get that. But a lot of these, mm-hmm. they require the details of the narrative. This one, it was just that the, the next day... Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't want to tell the whole story because, but... Don't spoil it for I, me. I remember, well, no, because it's, it, it's, it's just outrageous. But I ended up talking to my aunt on the phone. I don't talk to her on the phone that much, so it was very strange. It was only because I couldn't reach my mother on the phone. And I mentioned this dream to her. And you think, well, why would you mention this dream to her? I was just burning to tell the story of this dream. And... I mentioned this and this photograph and stuff, and she says, well, that's strange, because the photograph would have taken place in 1970 or something, 69. And she says, well, that's strange. I, we just printed out a photo like that yesterday on the Internet, sent to us from, from Germany, which is what I was describing in the dream. And, you know, I said, well, what? Say that again? I described this photograph from 1969, 70, in a dream. I end up mentioning it to my aunt, which is itself bizarre, and then she says to me, yesterday we printed out a photo that matches that description exactly from the same people in Germany, blah, blah, blah. But Now, that's half of it. You've got to read the story to, to make sense of it. But yeah. 
it just boggles the mind. You, you, you don't know where to turn. It, it, it's, it's something... Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it, you simply don't know what to do. You're, you're just so baffled. I've had that kind of thing happen, oh, I guess at least four times or something, where something like that happens, it just stops you dead, and all mm-hmm. I can say is, thank you, Lord. I don't know what that is, and I know you're going to reveal it to me, or I hope you're going to reveal it to me, but I am just buffaloed. But the, the, the point of, of even bringing that up was that I think there are times that the, God's point is to get our attention and to make us aware that he's there, and, and whether to comfort us or, I mean, typically I would say to comfort us. But I think that that's, a couple of the stories are like that. That's the point. It's God saying, you yeah. thought I wasn't here, I'm here. And, you know, that's... That itself is is pretty wonderful, but there's more to that one. Yeah. Well, I th- do you think unbelie- non-believers, I guess they're called, uh, would admit, in the main, as I envy people who have a deep religion in various ways, that um, it does a lot of good at times. I marvel at the woman who is asked by a tactless TV interview is. How did it feel losing all three of your daughters in the house collapse or something? And how did you get through it? She should be punched for saying, how does it, how did it feel? What are you going to say? Oh, it felt great because, you know, they weren't going to be around anymore and I'd have to clean up after them. Some, that is almost the answer it deserves, such a dumb question. But, but that they can say, I can only say my faith got me through the horrible weeks yeah. that followed well, I mean, that's a str- I've had a number of, of friends go through these things. The, the first time I was exposed to this, oddly enough, it was, gosh, this is amazing, but true. It was the day that I met you. I hadn't thought of this until you brought this up just now, so I didn't plan this. But the day that I met you, the day I, before I graduated from Yale, class day at Yale, you, I was the class day speaker, and then you were the celebrity class day speaker. And I remember that day... There was um, a ceremony. Actually, no, this is this is not quite true. What I was going to say was that I I remember that I was supposed to get up and crack jokes with my friend Chris Haynes. We were going to do the class history before you got up and crack jokes. And just before we were we were supposed to get up and crack jokes, there was an unbelievably moving memorial service for the 20-year-old. African-American Rhodes Scholar who had been killed by a truck two months earlier who was in our class. And it was one of these things that you just, I mean, if anybody, you know, again, in the, in, in the sort of natural, uh, pretentious, superficial pecking order, we'd say, why would he, why would you take him? I mean, he was, he probably would have ended up literally being president. He was that bright, that ambitious, that amazing, just one of the most amazing people killed at age 20. Do you have to and be the, that bright to be president? Obviously not, but um, but but the the thing the thing is anyway he was killed and so there was this terrible service terrible this moving service people are weeping out at old campus eight thousand people weeping ready to weep and as soon as it was over they said ladies and gentlemen Eric Metaxas and Chris Haynes with the class history and we looked at each other it was like this is a waking nightmare. <laughs> We have to stand up. But that's not why I'm bringing this up. I'm bringing this up because two months before, when Rosie Thompson, Roosevelt Thompson died, there was a service. And I was not 
a person of much faith at this time. But I remember a dear friend who had attended the service, uh, who was himself not much of a person of faith, reported to me what had happened at this service where Rosie's parents had been. And his father was a rural Arkansas pastor. And I will never forget these words for the rest of my life. He said, we loved Rosie, but we loved God more. And that just hit me. For a father who has just lost his son and a son of sons, to be able to say that, in other words, to effectively be saying, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to us, yes, but we know God is God and that he He has a plan that's bigger than anything. It's not like it works out neatly, like because of this, good stuff. But just the idea that he could say that, it just got to me. Because I knew I didn't have that kind of faith or anything close to it. But here was a guy who just lost his son. So he clearly was living this. And it, it just made me realize that it's possible to have that kind of faith. It was a number of years before I... Uh, really came to any kind of serious faith, but but I get it right now. In other words, if if, if my daughter, God forbid, were to get sick and die, I, I think by God's grace I could handle it. I wouldn't take to the bottle or kill yeah. myself by God's grace. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It just means that it's going to no, be it's possible. It's it something. probably won't bring closure. That dreadful word. Tra- tragedies don't have any closure. No. What does that mean? You're going to forget your daughter's death after enough time? I mean, if I'm lying in a bed someday with tubes in me and unable to move and blank thinking out, so to speak, blinking out, I do hope someone doesn't come up to me and say, don't worry, Dick, it's all part of God's plan. Well, okay, because it's not. Well, I would say, see, I would actually say that it's not. And this gets back to the issue of the fall. You have to deal with the theology that you, that, that, the God of the Bible, okay, weeps with us in our pain and suffering. It's, it's not some indifferent deity who uh, created the world and then off you go. It, it, the idea is that it wasn't supposed to be this way, right? In other words, that, that he didn't create this world. And this is the mystery of the fall, which I think sounds like a cop-out, but I think ultimately I don't. I trust that it's true, is that... Things were broken somehow, and that the death and suffering, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And when people say, oh, this is part of God's plan, it's, it, it's somehow cheap. It's at, least, um, it's at least not entirely true. In other words, even though there's a truth in that, it also leads to a lie, which is the idea that, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. And, and if, if, I mean, think of it in the story of Lazarus, Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons on that, but the idea, I think, is that Jesus was weeping at death and, and destruction. And in other words, he was weeping because he who created the world knew that it wasn't supposed to be this way. These horrors are not supposed to be. And I think that you, you, anybody who uh, relies on those kinds of cliches or, you know, my daughter died and, and, oh, because God needed another angel in heaven, you know... It's, it's so unworthy of, of yeah. these kinds of things. So it, let, let's, at least, you know, let's at least deal with it the way it ought to be dealt with and not cheapen it with those cliches. But. Right after dealing with the tin chocolate cake in Sunday school, we sang... You're going to uh, start, start making me hate God every time you talk about that tin cake. <laughs> That'll make anybody yeah. angry. Like, no. how could you... But um, 
then we sang Jesus wants me for a sunbeam and I thought to hell with that what am I going to be a sunbeam for you know what that is I want to play with my dog and I want to play baseball but you know what that is first of all that's not only not Christian theology or biblical theology that's like Carl Sagan theology right that we're made of the same stuff as the stars and it's or it's Hinduism that says we're all going to become one with mm. you know that that's not what the, the Bible says. No, that's not true, right? That's We're Sagan's going to remain. Line. What's that? That's Sagan's Carl, line. Carl Sagan said. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I kind of make fun of it in the beginning of the book, which I know you'll read eventually when you get back there. But no, it's yeah, it, I hear it, it's it, great. It, in all seriousness, <laughs> in all seriousness. That idea that, that people say, oh, yes, we're going to be one with the stars. And you think, oh, it sounds so nice. And then you think, well, I don't want to be one with the stars. That's the dumbest thing I've ever... You know, that's like when Woody Allen, you know, your friend was asking, you know, how do you want to die? What was it? Well... I want to live on in my apartment Mr. forever Mr. Groucho Marx's favorite line of Woody Allen's was, um, I, I, I don't discount the idea of my death. I just don't want to be around when it happens. Yeah. He, he, had a, he has a million good death lines. But and the one to, you're alluding to yeah, and almost yeah. referred to was... Um, partially. Thank you. Go ahead. Go was, ahead. Mr. Allen, isn't it a comfort to know that your films will live on? And he said, to hell with them. I want to live on in my apartment. Right. <laughs> but I mean, the, but the point is that's common sense, right? This idea that yeah. to be one with the stars and the sunbeams, what nonsense. And, and that, that's, I mean, that's why I reject Hinduism, right? I say, first of all, I don't think it's true. Second of all... It doesn't answer the heart's cry. That, that who wants that? That that you know, if you're forced to think it sounds nice, it sounds terrible to me. I don't want to be a sunbeam any more than Ooh. you do. No. And by God, they can't make us sunbeams. Wait, is there any chance Carl Sagan meant the movie stars? No, no. He didn't believe they. Existed, I tried to actually. bail him out there, but I, he's a, no. I it's it's no. I mean, it's this idea that there's nothing. I mean, Sagan represents the idea that there's nothing beyond this world, this material, natural world. And if there isn't, I would say logic demands that we see that that's incredibly bleak. And people trying to make sense of the bleakness, you know, yeah. try to put some spin on it and say, oh, we're one with the stars. And, you know, the stars, according to Mr. Sagan, the stars are just balls of burning gas. There's nothing magical about the stars, but he makes it sound. He's kind of fudging it by saying we're going to be one with the stars, you know. Uh, it's, it's, I it, can see you on with him saying, and you too, sir, are a ball of burning gas. <laughs> but you we're not going to get that You wouldn't chance. do a thing like that. Uh, does God, is there any evidence God has a sense of humor? Well, there's no doubt that he has to because... Don't go back to Dick Cheney <laughs> I'm not going to look at him. Um, <laughs> uh, I it's think an interesting there's no question, doubt about though. it. No, look, there's no doubt. If Again, this is all theoretical, right? I believe God exists, and, and the God in whom I believe, all goodness comes from him. He is goodness. So anything that's good comes from him. And thus. For example, humor, right? Now, yeah. anything can be used for good or ill, and we know that not all humor is used, you know, is, is, is wonderful, but it's kind of like talking about beauty or anything. It all comes from God. And the concept that God is anti-humor, again, it's a dead religious idea. The God, I mean, the, the, if you read the Gospels, the person of Jesus was full of life and joy. I mean, it, he wasn't a dour, 
you know, uh, 16th century clerical figure yeah. and uh, with pursed lips. Do you agree with the way he's painted? Literally Do I agree with the way he's painted? The way he looks. And you painted. mean two-dimensionally? No, well, I think he actually was three-dimensional. I remember. <laughs> he was, uh, yes. No. And then when they do that perspective thing, they can't fool me. It's still two dimensions. <laughs> what do too, you mean? What do you mean? You're too much. I don't almost know. Enough. I, I know. Uh, no, I had a course in the Old Testament at Yale, and it was wonderful. B. Davy Napier, a strange name. I uh, remember. He was still there when oh, I was, was there. Was he still there? Yeah. Yes. And, 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 beca- and, and he was um, good with students who tended to be skeptical and smart ass. Yeah. Yeah. And he would say things like, that's just not. We're never going to know that, those of us who are... And he went down here in the maelstrom. We, I don't have an answer for that, he said. I didn't come close to being converted by Billy Graham, but he came to Yale. When you were there. When I was there, he followed Eleanor Roosevelt by a week. And uh, he was stunning, star quality. And about two dozen, I would think, jaded Yaleys came down front to be saved. It was quite startling. He came when I was there in 1982, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's just so interesting because I remember seeing him come into the Calhoun Dining Hall with the Christian group on campus that had invited him. They were having dinner in the private room, maybe 30 of them or something like that. And I had gone to that little Christian group for one semester of curiosity. And then I said, this is not for me. I'd rather you know, hang out with the uh, lit majors and smoke clove cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was not part of that group. And I watched him walk in. I thought, oh, if I had stayed with that group, I could have dinner with Billy Graham. And it just tore at me that I, you know, I thought... He's, you know, he's something, and and it's, you know, yeah. part of that is just that he's a celebrity that I'd seen on TV, but it was more than that too. He was uh, tremendously gifted, tremendously Real dynamism. Gifted. I yeah, mean, I know he would say, "I know what you guys are thinking," and it was effective, and people went like that. He he, he had charisma. Mm-hmm. Um, their angels fascinate me, of course, as I think they would anybody. Do they ever help non-Christians? No. There's only so many angels to go around. You know, we serve a practical God. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, actually, you're, by, by bringing that up before I answer that seriously, um, the, I was trying to uh, mention all the people uh, who were in the book who were in this room, and I just spotted one of them. Peter, could you raise your hand, please? The most fascinating angel story in this book, I mean, my goodness, St. Thomas's Church on Fifth Avenue. Anyway, I won't, I won't uh, embarrass you any further. But that, okay. that story, uh, in, oh, why not embarrass him? Well, well, the story of that, it's the sort of thing, as Peter describes it, and you listen, you think, what, what is he making this up? He couldn't be making this up. It doesn't make sense. I, I, he, I, when people make stuff up, it's not this vivid and extraordinary. It's like... You know, uh, unless you're Gabriel Garcia Marquez, he could pull it off. But nobody else could pull off that sort of level of detail. And, you know, it's just real. And you think, wow, what do I make of this? Angels exist, you know, at least as far as I can tell. I've never seen one. But when you say, do angels ever help non-Christians, I would would say there can be no doubt. I mean, God is not... uh, 
you know, I mean, that, that, that opens up the whole thing. Now, I, I, we're getting the time sign in the back. Does this mean we have to go to questions now? Or I we have, have no to go... idea what this means. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it means stretch. I've never known. It means stretch. Keep going. Keep Let going. me enter two things quickly here. I tried to think, is there anything really remotely a miracle in my life other than the Jack Benny character guy? But um, my wife had, I think, a miracle. You may entice her into telling it some point. Okay. Yes. Perhaps at dinner. Uh, I mean, it, it has all the qualities. Mm-hmm. And you can um, put it in your next book. If you want, if you love suffering, if you're a fan of agony, read the part about what went into the birth of the book Bonhoeffer, A Writer's Nightmare Beyond Nightmare. I'm glad uh, I put that across because I honestly, I don't think I could ever express it, but you, you, just what you said makes me feel like at least I have Succeeded. Oh, I yeah. sweated for you reading that. Thank you. That stuff. Yeah. Here. Oh, well, I met I I, I, I met you. Uh, I met you and your wife Martha right in the belly of that horrible. Be- I'll never forget. It was on 57th Street. You were headed to the well, Russian tea room, and few- I saw you walking down the street. Yes. And I said, "Look." And that was the day. If I had to point to a nadir, in fact, I will tell you this, uh, and then I know we we have to go. Although, who's going to stop us from continuing? There's nothing you can do. Um, Do what you will. If you're at home and you want to watch the series, now you can go and watch it. But before now, no. Uh, No, this, I remember this, that, and I don't tell this in the the book, uh, but it was a very, very painful time in my life. It was just one of those things that sometimes, you know, and again, this is just because you know God and accept him and pray to him and love him uh, imperfectly doesn't mean that life is without suffering. And this was, it was, you know, in the scale of things, it seems like nothing, but it, it, it was horrible. It was an awful time. And I remember uh, that day um, I was um, as at my daughter's school for the talent program. I was going to sing, uh, what's that song? Uh, Too Fat Volca. D- d- that's it. Uh, no, Debbie Reynolds sings the Good Morning, Good Morning, you know that song. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And I was standing there, I was depressed, and, and you walked down the street. Now, the thing is this, that day, um, two people crossed my paths. Now, if you live in Manhattan, you realize, you know, I don't bump into friends or people. It's not, it doesn't happen very often, but, um, but it was someone else and you, and, and, and both of those people, one of whom you are, Really, it was such an encouragement to me on the darkest day. I just thought, I need something. God, give me a scrap, give me a, a, a breadcrumb, and let us close by saying, my saying, you were that breadcrumb. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's a long story, but anyway, now yeah. I think. No, 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 no. I'm looking to my producer. Do we have any time for questions, or are we, or are we pretty much done? You can edit out. You can our be the bad stuff. guy. Don't you hate her, man? Yeah. I can't. No, we have a couple seconds. Okay. So some questions, real quick. I can't quick. believe I meant something to you there. I, that would have been great in the book. Well, maybe in the uh, maybe there'll be a volume two, and we can. <laughs> Has anybody tweeted questions? Does anybody have a question? We, we, we're really. Um, Other uh, than what's the capital of North Dakota? Yes. Sure. Oh, there we go. Hi, Eric. Thank you. What impact do you hope your book will have? Wow, man. It's that's, just a gig. That's I probably wrote it to addressed pay the rent. to him. Uh, What's that? Where's that? 
It's addressed to um, you. <laughs> no, actually, I, I'll tell you that's uh, truly uh, the sort of question that I, I'd forgotten that I wanted to answer that in the course of this because it does... I feel, I'll, I'll just say this, I feel that in our culture, and I know I touched on this earlier to some extent, but we don't seem to have a healthy conversation about these kinds of things. We, you know, it's kind of a perpetual culture war where, where you, if, you, if you believe anything like this, you're a stupid idiot, and so I'll only hang out with people who think people who believe stuff like this are stupid idiots. Okay. And then there are people who believe this stuff in a very uncritical way, and that's both are wrong. We need to have a cultural conversation on these kinds of things that is worthy of, of a subject like this. And so when somebody sneeringly dismisses it, I just think that they're childish and irrational. That's wrong to sneeringly dismiss it, and, and anyone who does is being irrational. And I explain a little bit in the book why I, I, I say that, because science is limited to science, right? So, so to, to even speculate one way or the other from science and to say that science says that there can be no, nothing beyond the world that is accessible to, to scientific inquiry, that's, that's insane. Science can, can't possibly tell you that. So the best you can do is say, I don't know. That's really what you can say. Say, I don't know. That's the honest answer. So people who sneer at it and dismiss it, I just can't take them intellectually seriously. But then people who are so gullible that they're afraid to look into it with some skepticism or criticism or, or, or with some, um, um, I guess, real curiosity as, about, as to the actual nature of things because they, it might mess up something that they believe in. And I think, well, if something you believe in is capable of being messed up, maybe it would be good not to believe in that thing, you know? And so I, I think that really the reason I wrote the book was hoping to spark a conversation from both sides. I had two, uh, you know, I would say devout atheists comment very positively uh, ha- having read the book. And I thought that thrilled me that at least I wrote a book that, that they didn't think was stupid or unworthy of reading. I think if I've written a book on this subject that they thought worth reading, I've accomplished something tre- tremendous. But I really do hope that that both sides, and I know this sounds like a, a, a cliche, but it, it, ought, it, it needn't be, that, that we can have a substantive conversation on this. And my attitude is, if it's true, I want to believe it. If it's not true, I don't want to believe it. So I'm not selling anything. I'm not hoping my side wins. If God doesn't exist, I don't want to believe in God. But if he does, then I, I want people to maybe be aware that he, he might exist and they can think about that. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, be afraid to have a real conversation. And we live in a culture at this point, we are afraid. We don't have that conversation. And that's just horrendous, harmful, and I wrote the book, I hope, to begin a move in the other direction. So, An impressive thing in the book is the number of brilliant scientists you've been lucky enough to meet and uh, have come to, to talk and so on and rub shoulders and, uh, who, believe, uh, who are believers. Um, yeah. That would seem to be, I always thought, how can you be a scientist? I mean... Uh, Jonathan Miller, the great Jonathan Miller on a show of mine once, came on just the day that Kansas decided to stop teaching evolution again. And uh, he said, I mean, it's really preposterous. I mean, you know, talking the thing, it's only a theory. Saying evolution is only a theory is like saying evolution is... Um, uh, uh, it, it's like saying the theory of gravity. Right. Well, and, the, the thing is that even that... That's a perfect example to me. Evolution... Mm-hmm 
we talk about it, it's kind of like there are two versions. There's like all those dumb creationists who believe the earth was built 10, 10 days ago, and then the <laughs> smart scientists who believe there is no God and everything evolved yeah. randomly. And you think, wait a second, there are plenty of people in between those poles, but we never have that conversation. There are other positions to and, take. And, but there's, there's an infinite yeah. spectrum of positions between the two, but on TV, in the media, we never have that conversation. I tried to begin that conversation. We did a Socrates mm-hmm. in the City with Stephen Meyer. I don't think you were in attendance at that one, but where we began to talk about that. But people get so angry, and they, they, they want to prove their point, rather mm-hmm. than just say, wait a minute, let's talk about the facts, and let's try to see. And, you know, you don't have to know. You don't mm-hmm. have to pick an answer. Yeah. But I stepped on your anecdote. Forgive me. You were in the middle of No, no, I, I, it had no finish, and I was glad you came in. Um, <laughs> But uh, I wonder if you could find one of your precious scientists mm. who believes in the Creation Museum, where we uh, see Jesus playing with dinosaurs. No, I, I, um, I tend not to, to uh, know people who are what's called young earth creationists. I, I, I don't want to uh, be too dismissive of them because that would be to do what I say is not nice to do. So I, but I just don't know... I don't know very many people and haven't read very much on that, and I know that to some extent I'm the poorer for it. There's just an infinity of stuff on this subject yeah. that is so fascinating, and you know, there's never enough time. That's part of why we do Socrates and City to sort of begin the to begin those journeys. Now we probably have to stop. So probably. I think that here's the thing that I'm going to do now. First, I'm going to say to the folks watching at home. Um, it's like the eighth inning. You need to get out of here. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. for. We've never done a simulcast before. I, I oh. hope it's worked out reasonably well for you. And if it didn't, I don't think we can refund your money. I apologize. Um, um, but I want to thank those folks. Yes, I do too. And I think we're probably at a right time to because the game is tied. What? Stop that. <laughs> uh, you couldn't possibly know that. So, so I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank the, the rest of you. For, for coming. This really is the first time we've done anything quite like this, so, so thank you. Um, You're experimental. But m- more than anything, more than anything, I want to thank uh, my friend Dick Cavett for doing this tonight. God bless you.